Genesis tonight, 48. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. If you need a Bible, just get the attention of the ushers. They'll give you one so that you can follow along with us. A quick announcement, highlight reel here. Um, Praise and Prayer Night, October 21st this month. It's Sunday evening at 5 p.m. You can see the table in the back to fill out a prayer request or praise card, but we love it when the saints gather together with us to pray. Uh, I think this will be our fourth time doing it, and God has been so faithful to meet us, so um, be a part of that, please. It's so effective. The Bible says that the, the prayers of the saints are, are, are effective, and they avail much. God hears us, so come on out. Oasis, the older adults sharing in spirit, will meet on October 27th, so Saturday afternoon at the end of the month, 12 p.m. in the solid ground. Again, same day, men's breakfast. Only 8 a.m. that same Saturday, October 27th. You can sign up in the back for that. Uh, And also uh, another, um, we had a Christmas Eve informational meeting on Sunday, um, but we're having another one. Many people uh, expressed that they wanted to come um, and and just kind of get a feel for what's going on, and many weren't here this past weekend. So same thing, very brief after both services this Sunday, if you're interested at all in uh, being a part of the Christmas Eve celebration. Um, both the service, which will take place on Christmas Eve, but then also uh, there's a lot of seasonal things going on as well. You know, things for the kids. Other days, uh, we have our Christmas festival. We decorate this place and always want to make it epic and better. Uh, so visionaries, artists, please, any, any way that you feel that something you have can contribute uh, to making this a, a special occasion, maybe for a guest, someone who's invited to church that comes, uh, that will come on Christmas Eve, um, please be a part of it. The, the labor is not in vain. So uh, after both services, also high school youth retreat will be November 11, 9th through 11th at Bowdoin Park. Uh, high schoolers grades 9 through 12 are invited to join for a weekend of fun and Bible study. It's 65 bucks for two nights and your food. So um, reasonable cost, excellent cause. So if you have uh, teens or if you are a teen, please get involved uh, in that. You can register online on the church website, ccohv.org. And then this Saturday is the CareNet's Walk for Life. So uh, if you have yet to be a part of that, to sponsor someone or to show up in support, it will be at Bowdoin Park. Uh, This Saturday, October 13th, it starts at 9 a.m. There'll be activities for kids, fall treats for everyone. And if you have questions, you can see Allison or Gigi at the table in the back. Is is there a table in the back tonight? I think there is. So um, you can see them. I'm grateful to you guys for coming out. Uh, it's, a, it's a blessing to see so many of you. You could have watched online. You could have got the, got the recording or visited the app later in the week, but you're here. I believe you're here because there is uh, an experience um, of being with the saints in the place where God is, is moving um, that takes us to a higher dimension. And, uh, and I am expectant and hopeful that God is going to meet with us here. Uh, and it's a joy and a pleasure to be able to share the word of God with you. And I pray that, that there's uh, something happening between us while, while the Lord speaks, that he is the guest of honor, in a sense, or we are his guests in his house, you know. So we're in Genesis 48. Um, this, this, we're winding down. Obviously, you can see that, um, that we're in 48. There's only 50 chapters. Um, we will finish the book either next week or the week after. I have to give myself that trapdoor release. Uh, and, and then from there, um, we're, we'll, Lord willing, be moving into a, a study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I'm calling the study, uh, Get Over the Sun, uh, a study on the meaning of life. And, uh, you know, you say, what does that mean, get over the sun? S-O-N? No, the S-U-N. And, and the reason is because... Um, every, everything in the book, 
written, of course, by Solomon, it says that everything under the sun is vanity and confusion and frustration. And so the whole purpose of the book is to help us get over the sun. Because if everything under the sun is bad, then that means there must be hope somewhere else. So uh, that's the whole idea. That's the theme. That's why it's in the Bible. And it really is that. It's a study on the meaning of life. And so um, I I say that by way of whetting your appetite and getting you excited about it, because I believe that God is going to use it and speak to us and help us uh, to navigate life in this world where everything is frustration, but also that he might put someone on your heart that you might invite and say, hey, Wednesday nights at our church, we're starting a study on the meaning of life. Are you interested, you know, and uh, it just happens to be one of the major questions that most people have uh, comes up top on the search engines every year. What is the meaning of life? And God tells us the answer. So uh, coming up in just a few weeks, you'll know, of course, as we uh, advance through Genesis when that's coming. But uh, just pray for me and, and pray for anyone you'd invite. So we're in Genesis. Let's pray and just ask God to bless our time in his word uh, tonight together. So, Father, we, we believe that you're here. And it's with great hope, Lord, and and expectation uh, that we invite you, Lord, to to speak to us. We want more than academia, God. We want more than uh, precepts and truth, oh Lord. We want to have life imparted to us. And so as we look at this chapter and this segment, this moment in Jacob's final days, oh God, I pray that you would help us to glean from it perspective and wisdom and direction and understanding and and vision for our own lives. So would you please fill each of us with your Holy Spirit now? Would your anointing be present in this place, God, that the teaching would come from heaven and not from men? And so, Lord, we yield ourselves to you completely, and we ask that you'd have your way in this time uh, and in this purpose, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a funny thing that can happen um, to, to anyone who gets caught up in a, in a particular system. And, and that is that when you get so focused on something, um, your value system can kind of go off course. Your compass can move out of adjustment. Um, it's an interesting re- memory, but I remember when I was a child, uh, we grew up near kind of like living right in between these two amusement park theme parks. And uh, aside from those that we would visit frequently, there was always uh, a traveling carnival that would come into our town. And so, you know, we would go to these theme parks and we would get so caught up in the system of being there that our sense of value would shift slightly. And we would see people that were there and they would be carrying these massive stuffed animals, like a life-size Chester cheetah, you know, larger than a grown man. And all of a sudden, you would see that, and you would see, like, you know, that they won that, and that there was this achievement and this accomplishment in obtaining this treasure, and suddenly you would lose all sense of reason, and the value of that Chester Cheetah would take on epic proportions way beyond what it's actually worth. And you would see that this spirit of obtaining would kind of come upon everyone, and there would be crowds of people throwing darts at balloons trying to win a Chester Cheetah so that they could walk around and have the badge of honor of knowing that they had won that. You know, it cost them $50, you know. And then you leave that system and you go out and you drive home. And on your way home, you drive by somebody's front yard and there's a life-size Chester Cheetah with a big paper tag on it that just says, free. You know, and the thing is now infused with bed bugs. It's been sitting out in the rain. It smells like mold. And this thing that had been so important at one point, 
so valuable while caught up in a system has now become such a burden that just get this thing out of my sight, I can't even get the trash collectors to take this thing. Would someone please take this off of my hands? And it's an interesting thing. It can happen to all of us that our values can become skewed. I'm amazed sometimes in my own house that a fidget spinner can ruin someone's life. You know, if somebody wants it and somebody else has it. But yet, things in this world have the real potential and possibility of throwing us way off course in terms of what's really important, what's really valuable. And as we come to chapter 48 of the book of Genesis, it really is the sunset moment for Jacob. And you'll recall that this segment of the book of Genesis is all concerning the history of Jacob, the toldot or the generations, the history, the story of Jacob. And we've been following him and then through the, the life of his son Joseph and how God has led Jacob and is preparing his future and the future of his descendants through his sons, through his son Joseph and then through the rest of his sons, and now, as we come to chapter 48, we come to the closing of the curtain as Jacob is about to die. And what we see in this man is we see that his values at this time have changed. They've gone from worldly things, earthly things, achievable things, to now being eternal things as he, in sickness and facing death, realizes what has true value what's really worthwhile in this life and in this world, and thus the context of chapter 48, the passing of Jacob and the values that he has. Notice with me in verse 1. It says that it came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, Behold, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. So you'll recall that Joseph in Egypt was given a wife, Potiphera, the daughter of Azanath, the priest of On, this Egyptian woman. And with her, Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And of course, Manasseh, meaning forgetting, God caused me to forget, and Ephraim, meaning fruitful, God has caused me to be fruitful. And so Joseph, hearing that Jacob is sick, takes these two boys, and he now goes to Goshen from On, where he is living, and he comes to Goshen, where Jacob is, where the family is settled, to hear from him and to pay respects to him, knowing that his time for departure is at hand. And it tells us in verse 2 that one told Jacob now and said, Behold, your son Joseph comes to you. And so Israel strengthened himself, and he sat up upon the bed. Now, God has a few more things for Jacob to do before Jacob shoots off into glory. First of all, Jacob has a son, Joseph, who is steeped in the politics of Egypt. It's a God-ordained ministry that Joseph is fulfilling, but nevertheless, it is outside of where God wants his people in the big picture. And because Joseph is so involved and so steeped in it, Jacob has something that he needs to say to Joseph before he launches off into heaven. A second thing that Jacob has to deal with is that he has two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, that have never known anything of Canaan 
or the history of God with Abraham and Isaac, except, of course, what was given to him orally. And so he has something to impart to these two young sons of Joseph that have never been in Canaan, that are kind of foreigners to the promise and have brought, been brought up in the affluence of Egypt of the day. And so Jacob has something for them. And then finally, he has a family, the rest of his sons, to speak to and to pray over and bless and prophesy over in order to project them into their future and speak into their lives as well. And so there's something for Jacob to do, a purpose in his latter years. And what God does is God raises up an occasion in order for those things to take place. And the occasion that God has raised up for Jacob to do this is a sickness. So sickness, which is inevitable in a fallen world, it's something that touches every one of us. There's not one of us that is unaffected by it in some way, personally. We see God also using and employing sickness as an occasion to further his purpose and to guide and direct in his will. And that's an important principle for you and I to understand, is that even the sicknesses and the seeming setbacks that we experience in our life, that those things are part of the providence of God in order to lead us and direct us in the things that he has for us to advance his will and his plan. Now, an amazing thing about Jacob is that he seems completely unbothered by this at this point in time. He's not upset about the fact that he's sick. He's not complaining or crying out to God and saying, why are you letting this happen to me now? Aren't I your servant and can I have more time? But he seems to be embracing this. And furthermore, this sickness that he has seems to be giving him an amazing level of clarity. He's able to see things in his past, his present, and his future in an eternal context with such a clarity that he has never had before in his life. And it's just amazing to me that God is using something like a sickness in someone's life in order to speak to them, to lead them, and direct them. What I have found in my own life is that sometimes the greatest afflictions and the greatest setbacks and tragedies have actually turned into the greatest opportunities and some of the biggest blessings in my life. When I was just a young boy, probably 10 years old, things kind of began to turn sideways in my home, and my parents began to argue a little bit more than normal. By the time I was 12, my home was more like a war zone than a safe zone. And some of you probably can relate to that on either side of, of that, either as the 10-year-old or, or, or as the armies, you know, doing battle, you know. And, and, and they went through a long and bitter divorce, and they used many weapons, and mostly they were me, my brother, and my sister were the weapons that they used. And it was probably one of the worst uh, case scenarios in terms of uh, a family split up and explosion that can take place. And it was extremely hard on all three of us. And, and, and some of the effects of having gone through that emotionally and at that particular stage of life, some of those things are extremely... Um, just deadening. You know, they do damage to the soul. And I carried the damage of that soul and, and really in some ways still do even to this day. And that's part of the reason why God says that he hates divorce because of what it does to the generation that's coming to be. And, and a lot of times I think that, you know, if that hadn't happened, 
you know, maybe my life would be a little different or I would be a little different or maybe my emotional intelligence would be a little greater or, or something I could think about that. But then there's times that I realize some of what has come out of that. And, and I realize primarily the biggest blessing that came out of that was my wife. Because by, by far, aside from my salvation and what God has given me in his word, the greatest thing that I have in my life is my wife, Georgia. And if you know her, you know that. And, and many of you, you probably marvel and say, how did he do that? You know, listen, I'm not stupid. I married up. I know it. You don't have to think it and say it in your houses or your cars, you know, the whole thing. I know that I married up. And I have no idea how I did that. You know, I mean, she's not in here, thankfully. You know, she'd probably duck out if she was, you know. But, but, but really, it's been one of the greatest treasures in my life to have Georgia. But what I realize is that if my parents had never divorced, if they had never split up, that never would have happened. Because prior to their divorce, they were so strict that I was never allowed out of my house. And the things that had to happen in order for a friendship to unfold into a relationship and then begin the domino effect falling for us to be eventually together, saved and married, never would have happened if my parents were together. I just know that to be a fact because I saw some, some of what my older brother went through and I know what I was brought up in and I know what was necessary. All that to say is this, is that sometimes the things that we resist the most are the very things that God is bringing into our life because he sees something down the road that it's actually working out for our good. The occasion of jo Jacob's blessing upon his sons is a sickness. God uses it. And sometimes when we fail to see the divine purpose behind some of the afflictions or what we think of as uh, oppressions, you know, or op opposings, when we fail to see the divine purpose, we miss the opportunity. And we miss what God is doing in it, the greater thing, uh, in seeing it. I find that I spend a lot of time fighting against things that God has brought into my life for the sake of doing something good. But God uses even the sicknesses as an occasion for his grace. Well, the occasion, now the interaction. Jacob begins speaking to Joseph in verse 3 by rehearsing the past. It says that Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. And he said unto me, Behold, I will make you fruitful, and I will multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people, and I will give this land, speaking of the land of Canaan, not the land of Egypt, to your seed after you, for an everlasting possession. And so the rehearsing of the past as Jacob begins talking to Joseph now. He begins by speaking of God. And he says to him there that God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan and there he blessed me. Now the event, the occurrence that Jacob is speaking of is when he first ran away from home and he was lying one night using the pillows for a rock and he saw in a night vision a ladder that extended from the heaven to the earth and the angels of God were ascending and descending upon that ladder. And, and, and God speaks to Jacob there and gives him a promise. 
And he promises Jacob that he's going to be with him. And he extends to him the blessing that was given to Abraham and to Isaac. And Jacob kind of came to after this vision and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. Now I find it amazing that that is the event that Jacob brings up here now at the end of his life when he talks to Joseph. He says, Listen, when I was in Canaan, not Egypt, when I was in Canaan at Luz, which the name of Luz was then changed to Bethel, which means house of God. When I was in the house of God, Canaan, the land of promise, there God showed to me a ligament, a ladder that connected between heaven and earth. God showed me the very place on the planet that he was going to use to be the tangible expression and the future platform for the kingdom of God to be manifested throughout the rest of the world. That it was there that was in Canaan that God said, I'm going to use that land. That's the place. Now mark this in your mind. Joseph needed to hear this at this point in his life. Steeped in a foreign system. Consumed with a career in a foreign land. He needed to be shaken, as it were, and reminded, this is not home. This world is not home. IBM is not home. The political palace in Egypt, the White House is not home. The governor's mansion is not home. Home is somewhere else. And God appeared and he showed me that that is the place. Canaan, for you and I, it represents the full spiritual purpose of life that God has for us in Christ Jesus. It represents our connection, our citizenship, and our inheritance in the kingdom of God as it concerns our life here and now, while we're still on this earth. And the reminder that Joseph needed is the reminder that we need is that this world is not home. And the things that we do here, these things are peripheral, or they're meant to be eternal. But the things that we do here are not about here. And if we get consumed with the things of this world, then we miss out on the greater purpose that God has designed and planned for us. And sometimes I need to be shaken and reminded, it's not about here. This is the carnival, and Chester Cheat is worthless. And one day, he's going to be out by the side of the road full of bedbugs and mold. And it will be a big error if I spent my life and my energy and my effort laboring for something so that everybody could look at me and say, What? How did you do that? I threw a dart at a blue balloon and I broke it. I'm going to college. I need to get me one of those, you know. When we lose sight of what's valuable, for us, Canaan is an important thing. It's the abiding life, the fruitful life. It's an interesting thing if you look at it at the end of verse 3. Do you see those words where it says there that God blessed Jacob? Do you see that? Jacob says, God appeared to me at Luz, and he blessed me. Do you know why that stands out to me? Because remember 20-something years after the latter? Jacob had gone up north, spent 21 years with Laban. He has two wives and 12 kids that he's now bringing back, a pregnant wife. And he comes to an area called Paddan Aram, remember? Esau is coming with 400 men, and Jacob is scared. 
Remember that whole thing in Jacob's life? When Jacob was there, it says that a man wrestled with him all night long. It was Jesus Christ. And what did Jacob say as he wrestled with God that night over the conditions of his life and the circumstances that he was in? Jesus said, let me go. And what did Jacob say? What? Not until you bless me, right? Not until you bless me. But the amazing thing is that now, Jacob, at the end of his life, when he's looking back, he says that it wasn't when I wrestled with God and he touched the hollow of my thigh. It wasn't the night that I smelled his breath and looked into his face. That was not the night when I broke through and finally received the blessing that God wanted to give upon my life. He says, no, I had it all along. The blessing didn't come at one moment when I finally fought hard enough. When I held on and said, God, you've dealt me a bad hand and I'm not letting you go. That's not when the blessing came. He says the blessing was there all along. It's an amazing and remarkable truth to consider. Now that he's old, he realizes it. See, the thing is, what Jacob did is that he misinterpreted the circumstances of the immediate and concluded, based on those circumstances, in his interpretation, that because things aren't going the way that I figured they should be, that must mean that I'm not blessed of God. So he misinterpreted what was going on in the immediate, and he concluded that God must be somewhere else. But coming to the end of his life, and seeing the big picture, and watching everything unfold, he can now conclude and say, it wasn't that moment. It, it was never about the circumstances of my life. The blessing of God was on me at the beginning. But the regretful thing, and I think that the warning, the word of instruction for you and I is this, is that it is possible for us to live 20 years, not outside of God's blessing, but outside of the joy and experience of His blessing, because we fail to just simply grab hold of the fact that he says that we're blessed and it has nothing to do with my circumstances right now. For 20 years, Jacob carried with him maybe a sense of inadequacy. Well, I don't deserve the blessing of God yet. I haven't done anything. I mean, all I've done is deceive my father and run away from home. Yeah, he appeared to me, but certainly I've got to do a few things before he can really bless my life. I'm not under the blessing of God because I haven't achieved the blessing of God i got news for you. Listen, the blessing of God is imparted, not achieved. You can say something. You know. Thank you. <laughs> the blessing of God is imparted, not achieved. It isn't a matter of Jacob doing something, but he felt that level of inadequacy. I don't deserve the blessing of God. Maybe there was a sense of undeservedness. Well, even if God wants to grace it to me or gift it to me like he did to my grandfather Abraham... I'm so outside of what I think I should be or what he was that I don't deserve the blessing of God. Probably what it really was is that there was an unrealistic assessment of the definition of what it means to be blessed. Listen, yours and my present state is not an indication of whether or not we are blessed of God or not. You know how I know that? Because Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says this. It says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You and I are blessed because we're in Christ, and our outward circumstances do not make a difference in terms of the status of where we are with God. Our outward circumstances are part 
of what God is working into our lives right now or bringing us through in our lives while we're on our way to understanding and experiencing Him in the way that He has designed and ordained for us. And thus, I have the choice of whether or not I'm going to believe God and experience the joy of His blessing even though my circumstances speak otherwise to me or if I'm going to separate myself from the joy, though I abide still yet in his blessing. It's an amazing realization that Jacob has here. And I wonder how many of us are blessed right now, but we're not walking in the joy of that blessing because of some self-imposed barrier that we've placed up. Well, I don't deserve it, or I haven't earned it, or my circumstances speak otherwise. Listen, would you receive this? That even our afflictions right now are working for us a far more eternal weight of glory. And you're blessed. If you're in Christ Jesus here, you're in the blessing of God. And one day you're going to come to a place like Jacob and you're going to realize, you know what? It was there all along. It wasn't when I wrestled. It wasn't 20 years in. It was at the very beginning when God first appeared to me. That's when the blessing of God began in my life. And I see it now. But blessed is the person that sees it now. Not just then. Well, he goes from the rehearsal of the past to now a reminder of the promise. He said, Behold, I will make you fruitful, and I will multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people, and I will give you this land and to your seed for an everlasting possession. Now, watch this. It says in verse 5, And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto you in the land of Egypt, before I came unto you into Egypt, are mine. As Simeon and Reuben, they shall be mine. In other words, in the same context and definition and right that Reuben and Simeon are my biological children, your two kids, my grandkids, Ephraim and Manasseh, are now going to be named among my sons. I am officially adopting your offspring. And then he says in verse 6, And thy issue, that is the kids that you have after them, which you shall beget after them, shall be yours and shall be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. In other words, if you have any more kids, then those will be your descendants. But in terms of Ephraim and Manasseh, they are mine. And so God now gives this word to Joseph, and he says to him that these two boys are going to be mine. Now, why is Jacob doing this? Why is Jacob all of a sudden, in this moment of spiritual clarity, claiming the two sons of Joseph as his own? Well, we don't know definitively or you know, exactly in terms of like the main driving force behind this. But there is a clue given to us in Jacob's words. He says, your two sons, and then the only description he gives of them, he says, that were born unto you in Egypt. That is, out of all of my sons and my descendants, all of them have been in Canaan. All of them have some history in the place of God, in the land of God. But your two sons, all they have ever known is the affluence and the paganism and the distraction of Egypt. And I believe what Jacob is doing here in this instance is not making a demand of Joseph or even a request of Joseph. I believe that underneath all of it, he's making a promise to Joseph. 
I mean, put yourself for just a moment in the shoes of these two young boys. They're at this time between the ages of 15 and 20. We know that because of the chronology of events. It's definitive. They're, they're young, growing teenagers at this time in their life. They have been fed with a silver spoon. They've been brought up in the palace of royalty. They've been educated in the wisdom and knowledge of Egypt, and they've had the best of the best all their life. They spend their afternoons playing PS4. They've got social media accounts that are maxed out to the brim. They have more Instagram followers than anyone ever at that time. They have all the latest tech, all the latest gizmos, and probably they have no concern or care for what God has done in the history of their family because most teenagers at that age don't care what God has done in the history of their family. We're going to find out in a minute that they have not spent much time with Jacob because when they come into his presence, Jacob isn't going to even recognize who they are. And so we have these two boys that have known nothing of Egypt. They have a father who's devoted to God and I'm sure devoted to them, but he has an extremely demanding job and a whole bunch of things that are demanding his time and his attention constantly. And the state of these two boys is probably anything but spiritual at this point in their existence. But there's a beautiful thing happening here. Because as Joseph brings them to his father, the father makes a promise, a declaration, that those two boys who know nothing but Egypt, they know nothing but the world, they're light years away in terms of having a relationship with God, he gives a promise. He says, they are mine. I've got them. You can't see right now, mom and dad, the spirituality in your kids. You can't see in them any concern for the things of God, the things of Canaan. They've never known anything of it. They know that that's where you're from. They know that you have a history with God. They know it because you drag them to church every week and you're constantly preaching at them or to them. But they know nothing and seem to care nothing of it for themselves. And what Joseph does here with these two young boys is an amazing example of how you and I can deal with our kids, our Ephraims and Manasseh, who are steeped in the culture of Egypt. What does he do? First of all, he brings them to the place where they're going to hear who God is and hear what God has done, his word and his testimonies. Joseph brought his sons to Jacob where he would proclaim the name of the Lord and speak of the testimonies of what he's done in the hearing in their audience. The second thing that Joseph does is that he thrusts them into his father's hands. He brings them before the Father so that the Father can put His hands on them. And I think it's just an amazing example of how you and I, as parents, can serve our kids who seem right now to be so detached and so disconnected. Bring them to the place where they're going to hear about God. Put them before the Father in prayer. And then thirdly, cling to the promise that God whispers to you when He says, They are mine. When God says, though they might seem like they're your offspring and light years from me, I'm going to bring them into my family. And when God gives you the promise and he says, great will be the peace of your children. When God gives you the promise that you are saved and your household. When God gives you the promise that he will not give you offspring unto trouble. Then hold on to that promise. And believe what God has spoken over your family. That's what Joseph does.
interesting. In verse 7, Jacob goes on and he says this. He says, As for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan in the way, when yet there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And I buried her there in the way of Ephrath, the same as Bethlehem. Jacob says, hey, Joseph, you know part of the reason why I'm so bent on Canaan at this stage of my life, the reason why I'm so centered on speaking this into you right now, and why it's so important, is because I have a significant investment already buried there. Something that's dear to my heart is already planted and sent ahead in that land. And there's nothing more valuable to me than what God has in store for you in your future there as well. You know, this is one of the reasons why sacrifice is so important. You read so much in the Bible about sacrifice. You know, people that brought an offering or built an altar, you know, or gave up something, you know. And we read that and it seems kind of strange to us because we know that we're saved by grace. If we're biblically literate, we know that God doesn't need anything that we have. He doesn't particularly want it. He doesn't, want, he doesn't need my money. He doesn't want it. He says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, and if I were hungry, I wouldn't even tell you. you know, so God's not really interested in our stuff, and we know that it doesn't bring us any favor with God. So when we give to him, it's not like we're buying his blessing or the answer to a prayer. Like, you know, None of that really means anything. But yet the Bible still calls us to sacrifice. We're still to give. Financially, we're still to donate time and give of our service and our labor to the things of God. And we're to make sacrifices for others and on behalf of others, things that cost us something. And you kind of say, well, where's the connect? Why? If I don't get anything, if it doesn't build favor, and if God doesn't need it, then why should I do it? Here's why. Because when we give of ourselves sacrificially, when we expend ourselves in a way that costs us something, when we give in a way wherein we feel it because we're giving out of our excess, not just our abundance. You know, we're giving generously to God. Or when we labor in a field of ministry that seems to us maybe insignificant, but it costs us something and we become invested in it and we fight through it and we persevere in it, then what happens is that we become attached to the kingdom on whose behalf we're laboring for. And that is important for you and I in terms of keeping us from being over-distracted in the things of this world. And Jacob brings that up to his son here. He says, listen, I have a significant investment up in that land there. And that land that seems barren and that is in famine and that seems insignificant in the light of all the affluence of this Egypt thing, he says, my heart is ten times more attached to that than it could ever be to this. This is what God is seeking to communicate to Joseph through Jacob at the end of his life. And I believe what God wants to communicate to you and I here tonight. Where is your heart string attached? Where is your anchor set? Are we consumed in the cares of this life, in the riches of this world, in the pleasures of Egypt, in such a way that our heart is so far detached from heaven that that seems like a distant someday or a maybe. What investment do we have in heaven? Well, Joseph responds, or Israel, it says in verse 8, it says that Israel beheld Joseph's sons and he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Bring them, I pray thee, unto me, and I will bless them. 
Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age, so that he could not see. Now you say, well, that's why he didn't recognize the boys. Listen, you know your grandkids, okay? I could be half asleep in the dark and my door opens. I know who walked in my room. I know which one it was. I know the sound and weight of their steps. When you're close to someone, you know who they are. You don't need to see them. His eyes were dim for age so that he could not see. And it says that he, Joseph, brought them near unto Jacob. And it says that he kissed them and he embraced them. And then Israel said unto Joseph, I love this phrase. He said, I had not thought to see your face. And lo, God has shown me your seed or your offspring. I did not ever think that I would see your face again. And as it stands in this moment right now, not only am I seeing you, but I'm seeing your offspring there before me, something that I never thought was absolutely possible in all of what could happen in my life. I love this phrase, I didn't think. I love that. I didn't think. Do you know what Jacob is doing right now? He doesn't even know it. He's confessing sin. By saying, I didn't think, he's confessing that he did think something else. And we know that he did, right? See, what Jacob did think is that he thought Joseph was dead. What he did think is that he was cursed by God. What he did think is that his life would never amount to anything at some point. But he never thought that he was going to see Jacob or Joseph again, much less his offspring. Interesting thing. He never thought that this was in the realm of possibility that he would see Joseph again, much less his kids. And I love the difference in the Bible between expectation and reality. Because the expectation of Joseph was so far different than the reality that he actually received. And I asked the question, which one was better? What he expected was a dismal finish. What he got was a glorious end. It's an amazing thing in the Bible when you look at the places where people thought... You know, Jacob thought he would never see Joseph again. But he sees way beyond and better than what he ever thought was possible. You know, you think later on down the line, and, uh, you know, you come in the Bible to the, the story of um, uh, Naaman, you know, in Second Kings chapter 5. And here's this guy with leprosy. And, and he comes for healing to Israel. And he has this expectation of how things are going to go down. And he says, I thought that you were going to wave your hand. I was going to pay this money and I would be healed. And he gets angry because things don't go the way he thought. And he kind of storms off in a rage. But then he finally comes to his senses and he obeys the simple thing that God told him to do. He dips himself in a river seven times. And a leprous man became like a young man, like a little baby. His skin came to him again. See, it wasn't in his realm of possibility that it could happen, so he didn't expect that it ever could. I think of Mary and Martha. You know, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And our expectation, the script that we had, was that you were going to come here within two days, and you were going to pray over him, and he was going to recover and get well. But you stayed in the place where you were for two extra days. You left me hanging out here to dry, and my brother is now dead. Thank you, Jesus. That's the way Martha greeted Jesus when he came into town two days late. See, her expectation was different than what God wanted to do in the situation because he wanted to exceed her expectation because resurrection wasn't in the realm of her possibilities. And so God raised her brother from the dead, instead of just simply healing and praying over him. I think of Mary and Joseph, the mother and stepfather of 
Jesus, the Son of God. Their expectation was a storybook Jewish wedding. A young man and spouse to a young woman. A beautiful future, a rags-to-riches story in the making. But now she's pregnant out of wedlock. Riding on a donkey, 70 miles, 8 months pregnant. And she's sleeping in a barn. Some picture of a storybook wedding. This was not our expectation. I never thought that I would be giving birth to the Son of God. See, when God doesn't meet our expectations, oftentimes it's because He's wanting to exceed them. And I love Jacob. I thought, I never thought. You know what the solution is? This is probably the cure to like 90% of anxiety. Do you know what it is? Stop thinking. In fact, that's biblical. Because Luke chapter 12, verse 26, you can put it up on the screen. What does it say? Jesus said this. He said, if you then are not able to do the thing which is least, then why take ye thought for the rest? If you can't control it, stop thinking about it. Yield it to the Father, and I guarantee you this. The outcome will be greater than what you expected. You'll find yourself saying, I never thought that it could be the way that it is. It says that Joseph brought them out from between his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So here's the scene. Jacob is there. He's sitting in his bed. He's sick, and he can't see so good. Joseph, wanting to be a good son and accommodate the ailment of his father, he purposefully arranges the boys in such a way that Jacob's right hand, the hand of blessing and power, would go upon Manasseh's head, who is the older, the firstborn. It's his right to receive the right hand of blessing. And he places Ephraim by Jacob's left hand, and this is all to make it easier for Jacob, who can't move around so easy at this stage of his life. But it says that Jacob wittingly, meaning knowingly or purposefully, intentionally, crosses his hands and he puts his right hand on Ephraim's head and his left hand on Manasseh's head. And then it says in verse 15 that he blessed Joseph with this posture. And he said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. I love this blessing. It begins with God, the God who relates, the God who sustains, and the God who redeems. That's who God was to Jacob, and it's who he portrays upon them God to be. And he says, this God, the one who relates, the one who sustains, and the one who redeems, let him bless the lads. And let my name be named on them, the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he lifted up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put your right hand upon his head. You senile old man. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son. I know it. 
He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And so Jacob says, listen, this is spiritual. This is beyond me. This is of God. And in the clarity of this moment, what I can see upon your sons and upon your descendants is that, yes, Manasseh will be blessed, but Ephraim will be preferred. And Joseph, by the way, of all people, you should know that with God, it doesn't always go according to what you think and what culture determines in terms of who should get the blessing and the birthright of the firstborn. Wasn't Jacob the younger of Jacob and Esau? Wasn't Joseph one of the youngest of all of the 11 brothers that he had? When you read the history of God throughout the rest of the Bible, does God seem to ever care who's born first in a house? David being the youngest of all of his sons. So many that were born out of due time that were overlooked in some way, in some sense, because God saw something in someone else. You know, this gives me great hope. You know why? Why are you laughing? This isn't funny. This is serious. You know? Because the cross changes things. See, God crossed time and eternity in order to do something in yours and my life that culture would never allow, that barriers of education or just physical infirmity would never allow, but yet God is able to do. One of my favorite verses is Romans chapter 4, verse 17. It says that God calls those things that are not as though they are. It's at the end of the verse. And what that means is that when you and I have God's hand laid upon our lives, it doesn't matter what cultural, physical, educational, emotional barrier we might think will never allow us to become something that He can use greatly. And yet that's not true. Because the cross speaks something better upon your life and mine than what the world ever could or ever will. And what the power of God's Spirit that's infused into our lives because of the cross can do through our lives is infinitely greater than anything we could ever do, no matter our pedigree or level of education or competence in any field, in any place. Because it's not us that does it. It's not by might or by power, but it's by God's Spirit and because of the cross. God gives us the ability to be what we never could. And so he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die. But God shall be with you and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. Moreover, he says to Joseph, I have given to you one portion above your brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So not only is the tribe of Joseph going to be divided into two tribes and they will obtain the inheritance of two tribes, but Jacob now pronounces upon Joseph the added parcel of what Jacob personally took out of the hand of the Amorite with his sword and with his bow. And we close the study tonight with the double portion that was given to Joseph that Jacob says, I took out of their hands and I am now deeding to you. Part of the reason I believe for this is to remind Joseph that, hey, your future ain't here in Egypt, the theme of all that Jacob is saying to him at this time. But I think the greater part is he's saying, like, listen, there is a territory, there's a place that God has provided. 
And it's the future place and land for you, for the people. Canaan was the place where the ligament, the ladder that stretched between heaven and the earth, touched the ground. It was the place that God chose, as we said earlier in the study. But you know what the amazing truth of the New Testament believer is for you and I? Is that me and you, we are all individual Canaans. That's the glory of this whole new covenant thing. See, in Israel, old time, it was the land and God interacted through the land. But in the New Testament, he says that we are the temple and we are the territory and we are the ladder upon which the Son of Man ascends and descends and makes himself known to the world. You and I become the ligaments that attach heaven and earth. And here's why this verse is so significant and important to me and powerful for us. Because just like they were given the land of Canaan, but they were called to take the territory from the enemy, so also you and I as little Canaans are called by God to possess our lives completely and fully for his cause and for his purpose. Jacob says, I used my sword and I used my bow and I took that land out of the hand of the Amorite. And I ask you tonight, if you were to look at your lot, your land as a parcel, something that's been given to you by God, what territory in it have you taken? When you map out your own life and you just think through it and you say, well, this is the relational or relationship aspect or portion of my life. This is my marriage. This is my business. This is my hobby. This is my drive and ambition and desire. This is what I've achieved. This is what I do. This is what I'm good at. This is what's... Hard. And we go through and we just take all... I ask you, how much of that belongs to God? And how much of it actually even belongs to you? And how much of it is still overrun by the enemy? Is the flesh still driving your relationships? Is the flesh still holding your purpose and your ambitions? Are you being strangled from realizing the purpose that God has made you for? Or have you, with the sword of the word and the arrow of prayer, taken the territory out of the hand of the Amorite and said, no, 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 no. I'm a ligament that connects heaven and earth. And I'm not content to be a fishing line. And I'm not content to be a kite string. But I'm going to be the biggest broadband connection that heaven can find to channel its blessing to the earth. I want him to be mine. I want to be his. I was speaking with a brother. Worship team can come. We're finished. But I was speaking with a brother who's moving into a house. He closed on it today. And we were talking, he, he kind of lives near me, so he was asking me where I get my internet service, and we were going back and forth and the whole thing. We were saying, well, this company's good, but they only provide dial-up, and this one's okay, but you can only get DSL, and this one is good, but, you know, but they provide broadband, but they cost a little bit more, and you can't get Fios, and we're you know, talking about the strength of the connection that we could have in our home to everything else that's out there. You guys get the idea. And when we take territory from the enemy and from our flesh and it's consecrated unto God and we give him more of our lives, that signal gets stronger. And it is the will of God that we obtain all of it, that we possess all of what God has made us to be and that we live in the full purpose of it. And here's what happens, is that we then get to pass that on to our kids. 
What an amazing privilege. Well, we'll continue with Jacob. We'll wrap up his his substance and his story as he uh, goes down. I, I really sense that the Father tonight would call us aside. And in the midst of the busyness of our lives, He would simply ask us the question, Are you living for Canaan? Is Canaan what you're about? Father, we just take this word and we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to receive, Lord, in it the substance that you have for us to hear. We recognize, Lord, that we're, we're, we're consumed, we're often caught up, we, we miss out, Lord, but, but we desire, Lord, to see what's important and place value on the things that are eternal. So would you help us to see our lives in the context of what's really important? And would you show us, Lord, where, where we stand right now in this battle between Egypt and the promised land? And Lord, that you would help us. That we wouldn't come to the end of our life and realize that we missed out on the joy of walking in your fullness or that we wasted it in laboring for something that cannot last. So as it applies and is needed for each of us, Lord, give us clarity and sight, vision. We trust you. We look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.